Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles again to, um, well, let's start in Romans chapter 1 where we started last week. If you were with us last Sunday morning, we started a series. You may remember that we started a series on uh, the subject of faith. 28 years ago when the church started, we, uh, we were teaching on faith, started off preaching on faith, and here I am again. Didn't plan it that way, but here I am again. Romans chapter 1, we, uh, we started a series, and uh, have just begun a series that, uh, that I'm stealing a title from Brother Hagin, the ABCs of faith, because I want to teach faith not from where we might be, but teach faith as if we haven't heard anything about it before. I think a lot of times we take for granted the things that we know and assume that everybody else knows what we know, and so we, we cover things too quickly, and uh, we miss some of the, the beginning steps. But uh, the more we go back to the beginning and the foundation, the building blocks of faith, then the more solid and, and secure and established we are in our faith in God's Word. So in Romans chapter 1, we're, uh, we're talking about the ABCs of faith. The ABCs of faith really come down to three things. One, what is faith or the definition of faith? The second, how faith comes. And then third, how to use your faith. You can know those three things and you can operate in faith in any area of life. So we're starting off with what faith is. We started in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Now, what is the gospel? Let's stop for a minute and, and analyze this. It's real easy to, to look at scriptures, especially if you've read them before, and assume that you know what it's talking about. But unless we stop and think about, wait a minute, what is the Holy Ghost trying to get across to us? We're going to miss some important truths. So what is this gospel of Christ that he's talking about? It's important because he says it's the power of God unto salvation. Now, let me uh, give you a little insight into the word salvation. It's the word sozo, S-O-Z-O in the Greek. And it implies five different things. It doesn't just mean forgiveness of sins like the modern-day church world uses the word salvation. The word salvation, this word salvation, means rescue, deliver, to make safe, to make sound, or to heal. It means all of those things. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross just for your sins to be forgiven. Jesus, the Bible says, redeemed us from the curse of the law. The reason that he went to the cross was to redeem us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is not only sin, but it's also sickness, it's poverty, it's all the effects and the results of sin coming into the earth, and literally death. Now, that's not talking about physical death. It's not saying that if you get saved or you believe God, you won't die physically, because the outward man is, de is decaying or perishing. But spiritual death, the effects of spiritual death. In other words, the Bible says that Jesus came to redeem us, to bring us back to the place as if sin had never entered into the world. That sounds too good to be true, isn't it? Well, except for Jesus, it would be too good to be true. So here we're talking about the, I'm not ashamed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The word gospel means good news. In other words, it means the knowledge that we have from the Word of God about Jesus and what we're redeemed from. So if you allow me, we could just summarize that by saying the Word of God, because that's the, the source of all the knowledge that we have about what Jesus has done, right? So let's insert Word of God in there and for gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Word of God. For it, the Word of God, is the power of God to rescue, to deliver, to make you safe, to make you sound. Soundness has to do with your thought life. It has to do with stability and, and uh, uh, soulish areas. And it's the power of God to heal you. I'm not ashamed of the Word of God for it. The Word of God is the power source. It's the source of power to whatever you need. 
Well, if that's true, and it is, thank God it is, then there's certainly nothing to be ashamed about when it comes to the Word, is there? And that's what Paul's saying. Now, Paul's being persecuted for preaching the Word, but he says, I'm not ashamed of it because I found that it's the power source. It's worth all the persecution in the world because it's the source of power for everything you need. Well, who does it belong to? Notice it says, to everyone that believeth. Notice it doesn't just say everybody in the world. It says everybody that believes. See, there's so much of the Word of God, the promises of the Word of God that are unrealized, that go unrealized in the church world. And the church sits back and says, oh, I just don't understand why God let this happen to me. But the Bible says that the power of God to rescue you, to deliver you, to make you safe, to make you sound, and to heal you is available unto you only when you believe it. Not because God said it, but when you believe it. Now, believing is an aspect of faith. It's the beginning of faith. There are many definitions we could give for faith and will throughout the series. But one definition we can give for faith is faith is the condition that comes from having believed. I used the example uh, last week about marriage and, and a wedding. I'm in a marriage because I got married. Now, the wedding ceremony that happened forever ago wasn't the marriage itself. But I can't be in the marriage without having gone through the wedding ceremony. Well, it works the same way with faith and believing. Believing is the act whereby you extend your faith toward God, and then faith is the resulting condition thereby. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ or the word of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, therein means in the word of God, for in the word of God is the righteousness of God revealed. Notice the righteousness of God is not revealed by your feelings. You're never going to know you're righteous by the way you feel. The righteousness of God is revealed in the Word of God, which explains why you have to believe it if it's going to be real in your life. For the righteousness of God, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. That means growing in faith, from one level of faith, one measure of faith, to the next level of faith, or the next increasing measure of faith. As it is written, please notice this last phrase, as it is written, and this is written in the Bible five different times, the just shall live by faith. Again, please notice it does not say the just shall use their faith. I think that's a lot, a lot, all of uh, what a lot of people believe about the subject of faith. It's something to use. No, it's something to live by. Now, please notice this, folks. Jesus came to make you righteous. He died on the cross to make you righteous. Therefore, righteous means to be made just. Therefore, God expects every one of his children, every one of those who have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, to live by faith. That means you can't live any other way. That means he expects you to pass up every other opportunity to live any other way to live by this thing called faith, this condition that results from having believed. Faith is a lifestyle. Well, we talked about that some last week. We also looked over at James chapter 1 and found out that faith is the only way that you can expect to receive anything from God. We looked at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 where it says faith is the only way that pleases God. Why? Because God is pleased when you receive from Him. What a waste of time for God to plan redemption, send Jesus to the earth to accomplish it, and then people not receive what He, what he died for. For people not to receive what He paid the price for. Whether it's rescue, deliverance, 
or forgiveness of sins or healing or whatever the case may be. What a shame it will be for people and multitudes of people will get to heaven and say, as they claim now that they're going to ask God when I get to heaven, why did he let this happen to me? They're going to get to heaven and they're going to say, God, I don't understand it. And God's going to say, why didn't you believe? Didn't you see where it said over and over again, the just shall live by faith? We saw also in James chapter 1 that faith settles the issue. Faith doesn't waver. It doesn't go back and forth. Faith believes, one time believes, and then that condition of faith is established. This is the way it is once and for all. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. I want you to see something in Romans chapter 3. Because I want to talk to you about faith being something that a lot of people don't, uh, it seems to me that a lot of people don't recognize. Romans chapter 1, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3. Paul is talking about being justified. He's talking to the Romans about justification. He's talking about which we would call salvation, what the modern church calls salvation. Because all that means, justification just means having been forgiven of sin, having been made righteous. That's as far as most of the church goes, as far as the the price that Jesus paid on the cross. And that's not all it means. It's an all-inclusive word, as we mentioned before. But when he talks about justification, he's talking about what Jesus came to provide for us. And notice it says, um, well, let's just start reading in verse 23, or verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely means made righteous. Notice that's past tense. We have been made righteous by the work of Jesus. You're not going to be made righteous when you live better. You have been made righteous because of Jesus, not because of you. That's why you have to believe it. That's why the just must live by faith. You've got to believe what the Bible says instead of the way you feel. Because nobody hardly ever winds up feeling righteous. You may be glad about how you handled things yesterday, but wait till the end of the day. You'll stumble and fall. Your feelings will change. So he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, talking about Jesus, has set forth to be a propitiation. Propitiation means mercy seat. It means God let him pay your price. Through faith in his blood, he set forth Jesus to be a propitiation or a substitute through faith in his blood. Notice you've got to exercise faith in it. Folks, the Bible talks so much about faith, I don't understand why people can possibly say on any situation or in any circumstance that we talk too much about faith. If it's what you live by, if it's the only way you can receive from God, if it's what God demands of us, if it's the only way to be saved, how can you talk too much about faith? Now, I guess what people mean by that when they say it or take that position, they think, well, I already believe in Jesus, so let's move on. Well, if faith was just something you use to get something, then I would understand that. But it's not. That's why faith is a lifestyle. You never move on from faith. That's kind of like saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm alive, I'm here on the earth, I'm, I've been born, I breathed once, so let's move on. No, you're going to live by breathing. The same way a Christian lives by faith. So he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom... Speaking of Jesus, God has set forth to be a propitiation, the mercy seat, our substitute, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness. In other words, you've been made righteous. No matter how you feel, no matter what you did this morning or yesterday or whenever. 
If you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you've been made righteous. Even if you act unrighteously, you've been made righteous through faith in his blood. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. My purpose is not to teach on righteousness this morning, folks, but i got to tell you something. Most people don't understand that the reason God made you righteous through Jesus is so that he would be just. In other words, it's not about you. Now, I'm not being flippant about that. If it was about you, then it would depend on your actions. It's not about you. It's about God, his character, his word that never fails, and Jesus, his eternal son. It's about him, and that's why you're righteous. That's why you can't lose your righteousness by doing something unrighteously. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier, the one that makes righteous, of him that believeth in Jesus. Notice he mentioned faith in his blood. Now he's talking about believing in Jesus, all associated with receiving what Jesus did, making us righteous, setting us free from the law of sin and death. Verse 27, where is boasting then? In other words, what do we have to brag about? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? What law excludes our right to boast? Is it by works? No. Notice the last phrase. Our boasting is excluded by the law of faith. That means faith has to be a law. Now, what's a law? Well, God created the earth. He could have made it any way that he wanted to. He made it subject to physical laws. There are natural laws, physical laws, laws of gravity, for example. I don't care how much you believe God. You step off the end of a building, you're going to crash. The law of gravity is always going to work, right? I don't care how much you love God. You handle electricity by violating one of its laws, you're going to get shocked, maybe electrocuted. Does that mean God doesn't love you? No, it means you violated the laws that govern electricity. So much of the church world, so much of the world at large does whatever they think they want to do and then wonders why did God let it happen when so much of the time is they violated laws. Some of those are physical laws and those are easy to understand, but faith is a spiritual law. Now, what that means is faith will always work if you'll operate according to the rules that govern that law. Just like electricity will always work. Just like gravity will always work. And it'll work to your benefit if you obey the laws of gravity. Amen? Faith is a spiritual law. That's why the just live by faith. That's why the lifestyle of faith is important because it's a spiritual law that always works. Now, I want you to notice with me something else. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, this is talking about receiving salvation, receiving the work that Jesus paid or the price that Jesus paid for us. We're going to pick verse 10 out of the, uh, the section here that's talking about people getting saved and the way to get saved. Can believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead and confessing with your mouth that he's your Lord of your, of your life or Lord and Savior. Notice it says in verse 10, the first part of the verse says, for with the heart man believes. For with the heart man believes. For with the heart man believes. Now, how do you believe with your heart? What does that mean? Well, he can't be just talking about the physical pump, physical organ in your body that pumps blood. 
Because you can't believe God with your physical heart any more than you can believe God with your nose. Wouldn't that be confusing if the Bible says, for with the nose man believeth? We'd be left to wonder how in the world does that work? And notice also he didn't say with the mind man believes. Notice he didn't say with the feelings or with the body man believes. He says with the heart man believes. What does he talking about the heart? Well, you're right here in Romans chapter 10. If you'll back up to Romans chapter 7 and verse 22, you'll see that Paul talked about this heart in a different place, in a different way. To give us a little bit more insight, he said, I delight after the law of God, in the law of God, after the inward man. Now he's talking about the heart as being the inward man. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, he contrasts the inward man with the outward man. He said, though the outward man perishes, the inward man is renewed day by day. Now, I want you to look at this one. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. Peter, who's inspired by the Holy Ghost, tells us something about the heart and defines it so that we can get some insight into how this law of faith, this spiritual law of faith works. Peter, in the midst of talking about wives getting their unbelieving husbands saved, mentions to them about not putting all their efforts into the outward appearance, but to work on the inside. In other words, he's saying if you're going to reach somebody for Jesus, you're going to reach them from the inside, not from the outside. And notice he says, tells them how to do it. He says, don't put all your attention into the outward adorning, planting of hair, wearing of gold, and wearing of apparel. Now, in the old days, early days of Pentecost, preachers used to preach against, uh, it used to be called clothesline preaching. Preach against wearing gold and fixing your hair and stuff like that. And a lot of preachers would be out there preaching against old-time beauty parlors. Remember when they were called beauty parlors? Well, somebody came to Brother Hagin one day and said, uh, he was an old-time Pentecostal and just a hard guy. And he said, Brother Hagin, do you preach against beauty parlors? Brother Hagin said, Brother, I don't preach against anything that's helping. <laughs> well, people take part of that, and they say you shouldn't wear gold and you shouldn't fix your hair. Well, that's only two-thirds of it. It's, if that's the way that the Bible is intended to be interpreted, then it says you shouldn't wear clothes either because it includes the putting on of apparel. I don't hear too many people reaching like that. So Paul said, or Peter says rather, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, he talks about the wives working from the inside, adorning themselves from within. He said, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. I love that phrase. Let it be the hidden man of the heart. The hidden man of the heart. Now what hidden man is he talking about? He says there's an inward man. Paul says there was an inward man and an outward man. There's a man on the inside of you. It's the real you. Peter says, let it be the hidden man of the heart, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the price of God of great sight, uh, which is in the sight of God, great price. So what is he saying? He's saying the hidden man of the heart, that's the same inward man that Paul's talking about, is the spirit of man, the real you. It's the real you. So if there's a law of faith and we're supposed to believe God for with the heart, the spirit of man man believes, that means it has to be a spiritual law, right? Now turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, here's a passage of Scripture that a lot of people pull out of context and try to make it say something it doesn't. Paul is going to tell us, he's going to wind up this, uh, this section by telling us that there are three spiritual laws. He's going to tell us something about spiritual laws too. We'll start in verse 8. It says, love never fails, 
But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail or come to an end. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Notice it does not say they have ceased. It says they will cease. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now, folks, I would submit to you that all those folks that are saying that tongues have passed away have got to admit then, therefore, that knowledge has passed away. Now, I know in their own individual cases, in many situations, that seems to be true. But Paul says at the same time that, pro- that prophecies end, tongues will end. And the same times that tongues will end, knowledge will come to an end. Now, when is that going to be? Well, the Bible says when Jesus comes, we'll see him face to face. We will know as we are known. In other words, knowledge will pass away when we get to heaven because knowledge will be superseded by truth. Tongues will pass away when we get to heaven because there will be no need for us to speak in tongues because we will speak openly face to face with God. There will be no need for us to have prophecies any longer because the prophecies will have come to an end because they will all be fulfilled. So there's coming a time when Jesus comes back for the church that prophecies will cease, that tongues will cease, and that knowledge will come to an end. That time is coming. It hasn't yet. It won't end. None of those three things will end until we get to the end of the church age. And then it goes further, and it says in verse 10, but when that which is perfect has come. Now, some people, again, here's the objection that some people have. Some people say, well, that which is perfect means we've got the whole of the Bible now. And they didn't have that back then. So we've got that which is perfect. Well, Paul had most of the revelation in the New Testament, didn't he? He wrote two-thirds of it. Yet he said we know in part, we see in part, and we know in part. So he didn't consider everything about his revelation to be perfect. Peter said about Paul's revelation that he didn't even understand everything Paul wrote. He said our brother Paul writes things that are hard to understand. So it's hard for us to get, uh, have a, an understanding that Peter's going to add much to the revelation of Jesus. He understood that Peter, I'm sorry, Peter understood that Paul had a greater revelation than he did. That it didn't keep Peter from fulfilling God's plan for his life. Didn't keep Peter from doing great works and signs and wonders and miracles and so forth. But he recognized that Paul had a greater revelation of who we are in Christ than he did. So how is the the, the word of God going to be that which is perfect? Because we still have the flesh to contend with. And as long as we have the flesh to contend with, there's nothing going to be perfect. So that which is perfect has to be when our flesh is changed, when we receive our redeemed bodies. That's when Jesus comes back for us. That's what Paul's talking about. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. That's the progression of children. Speak first, understand later, think last. That's what spiritual children do, folks. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly or dimly, but then face to face. Paul, who had been to heaven, caught up into the third heaven, saw Jesus, heard things that he wasn't able to explain, said we still see things darkly. In other words, we can't see things clearly yet. Why? Because we're bound by the flesh. So Paul understood that that which is perfect meant the changing of the flesh. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Now notice verse 13. All that was to get to verse 13. And now there abideth faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 
Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about things passing away. He's talking about things that endure. So he's telling us, therefore, three things are going to pass away. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. When Jesus comes back for us, when we get to heaven, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will pass away. But three things will not pass away. In other words, these three things are eternal. Faith, hope, and love. Then he says the greatest of these is love. In the context that he's talking about, the operation of spiritual gifts, love is the greatest. But love is not the greatest when it comes to receiving from God. You can't find a scripture that says without love it's impossible to please God. You can't find a scripture that says without love it's impossible to receive from God. So love is the greatest in context of the operation of spiritual gifts, but not in the context or in the area of receiving from God. Now, love is always important because Galatians chapter 6 says your faith works by love. So love is also always a necessary ingredient, but it doesn't mean in every situation love is going to be the greatest or most important thing. It is in this one that he's talking about the operation of spiritual gifts, but not in every application. However, we see that faith, hope, and love are all three spiritual forces, spiritual laws that will last when we get to heaven. In other words, you're going to operate by faith in heaven. You're going to operate according to love in heaven. You're going to still have hope in heaven. Now think about that, folks. I don't want to get sidetracked too much here, but think about what that means. You're still going to have things to hope for in heaven. Most of us have the idea or assumption, we don't really think it through, but most of us assume that faith is the realization of our hope, and that's it. That's the end of everything. It's not. The Bible says that once we get to heaven, God will use the ages to come to show us His goodness and His mercy. Ages. Now, we're living in a church age that's existed for about 2,000 years. I don't know how long other ages are that God has planned, but it's not going to be just sitting by, sitting every day peeling grapes and listening to angels play harp music. There's going to be something worthwhile to do in heaven. It's going to be life. There's going to be purpose. There's going to be things for us to hope for. It's not the end of anything. God is so good, He's infinite. But we wouldn't assume that since there are these three, three things, these three spiritual forces, faith, hope, and love, these th three things that are eternal, we wouldn't assume that you could substitute one for the other, would we? I think a lot of faith people do that. I think a lot of so-called faith people try to substitute faith for love. Instead of walking in love, they just try to work on their faith. But that doesn't work. Well, if you can't substitute faith for love... You wouldn't assume that you could substitute hope for faith because all three of these things are eternal. They're all three spiritual forces and they're all three eternal, which means they're independent and they can't be substituted one for the other. Now, with that in mind, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This was a scripture that many assumed that we should start with when we were talking about what faith is. But I think it'll have more meaning for us now that we see some other characteristics of faith. First, notice it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now faith is. I always like to look at those first, first three verses. Now faith is. Have you ever noticed that hope is never is? I know that's not good English, but you know what I'm trying to say. Hope is never present tense. Hope is always out in the future, but faith is always now. 
Notice that hope has no substance. <clears throat> we, uh, the way we speak about hope a lot of times gives people the impression that hope is, a, a, is an insignificant thing. But it's as an eternal spiritual force as faith is or as love is. It's a necessary thing. It's very, very important. It just can't take the place of something else. And neither can something else take its place. So it says hope has no substance. Faith is the, is the substance of things hoped for. Hope is like a dream. Hope is like a goal. But there's no substance to the dream. If you don't have a plan to get from where you are, the reality of where you are now, to what you hope for in the future, then it's nothing more than just a wish. Now let's assume that we're building a house. And we decide that we're in this house, we want to have certain things. One of the things we want to have is we want to have a furnace or a heater in the house. We don't, we've never had one before, but we've seen other people's houses, and boy, it looks nice. So we decide we want a furnace in our house. So we've built the house. We've gotten to the place where we order the, the furnace, the gas unit, whatever it is, and we get it. It's delivered to the house. We get it hooked up. The electrician hooks it up. Now there's a power source. We have everything we need to heat the house. But we look around, and we think, wait a minute. Something's missing. Oh, I know what's missing. We need to go to Home Depot and get a thermostat. So we go to Home Depot and we get a thermostat, and this thermostat shows us several things. First of all, it shows us the current temperature, and then it's got a little dial on it that shows us the, the temperature setting. So the temperature, we get up in the morning, the temperature is 50 degrees in the house. We think, oh, it's too cold in here. We need to get warm it up. So what do we do? We see the temperature. The current temperature is 50. We turn that little dial and we set it up there to 68. And we sit there and we sit there and we sit there and nothing happens. We don't understand. Now, we've hidden away the furnace. We either put it in a closet in the house or we put it outside where it can't be seen, can't be heard. Nobody likes to look at the furnace. So we've got the furnace, power to the furnace. We've got the power source that will heat the house. We've got the thermostat that will set the temperature. But we're missing something very important. Now, the thermostat is like hope. Hope is what we want to occur. What we're missing is the wiring from the power source to the thermostat. Faith is the wiring that makes the thing work. Hope is the thermostat. It's the goal setter. It's what you set your attention on. This is the way I want things to be. But if you don't get some wiring from the power source to the thermostat, you can spin that dial like it's a roulette wheel and nothing will ever happen. Or you can set that dial wherever you want it and look at it for the rest of your life and say, I just don't understand why it's not working. Someday it's going to get to 68 degrees in here. Well, you may have to wait for summer. Faith is the thing that connects the power source to the goal. That's why Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance Faith gives substance to what you're hoping for. Now, here's how, this, uh, here's how this works to the detriment of many people. A lot of people think that hope is faith. They think that all they have to do is hope. And so you'll hear people say, well, there's nothing left to do but hope and pray. Well, folks, if hoping is what you're doing when you pray, don't think, according to James chapter 1, don't think that you're going to receive anything from God. Hoping does not receive. It's great at setting goals. It's great at, at, at laying out a vision but it's terrible at receiving. That's why when you hear people say God's going to do something someday, you can tell that they're not in faith, they're in hope. Because hope is always future. 
Hope is always out in the future. Someday, God's going to heal me someday. God's going to meet my needs someday. Something's going to happen. I won't have anything to do with it, I'm sure, but something's going to happen that's going to bring the, the promise of God into my life. Well, it won't. I used to watch Brother Hagin. He'd get somebody that was in that situation. They'd say, well, I just believe God's going to heal me someday. And Brother Hagin would look at him in the face and say, well, he won't. He said, God has already done everything he's ever going to do about your healing. And I've seen so many people tune up and bawl and squall and say, oh, you mean God's not going to heal me? Brother Hagin said, I didn't say that. Yeah, but you said God's already done everything he's going to do. Well, folks, he has. He already sent Jesus. Jesus is not coming back to the cross to hang up there for one more second for you. He's done everything he's ever going to do. And everything he's done is sufficient for you to have everything you need. But we have to make the connection between the power source. Now, we already know what the power source is. We read that in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the word of God, is the power of God unto salvation. Every part, every aspect of salvation. So the power source is the word of God. The hope you have is whatever you've set your goal on. But faith is the wiring that makes the connection between the two. Can you see that? And without the wiring, it doesn't matter how powerful the the furnace is. You can have the biggest furnace they've ever made to heat a house. You can have the best thermostat that's ever been made. You can spend gazillions of dollars on either part. But without the wiring to connect the two ends, you're never going to get any results. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the only thing that has substance. Hope doesn't. Hope has no substance. Faith is that which gives substance to what you hope for. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Here's the part that people have trouble with faith. The last part of the verse, the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. Most people are trying to use their faith on things they can see. But by definition, faith is designed for things that you can't see. Now, in our example, we've hidden away the furnace. You can't see it. The power source can't be seen. We do that by design. In my house, we've got a little closet there off of the hallway where you can't see it, and it's insulated where you're supposed to not be able to hear it. You can, but you're not supposed to. But that's what we do. Some people even put them outside. All for the purpose of not being seen. You don't want to put it in there next to your couch. Right? And so the wiring goes to something we can't see to bring about the goal that we set on the thermostat. That's the way faith works. Faith reaches into the unrealities or the unseen, unrealities as far as the natural eye is concerned, the unseen realm, and brings those things that you hope for into the natural realm of reality. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I would submit to you that the word seen is used both Literally and figuratively. Seen means seen with the natural eye. No question about that. But it also represents things that we use to perceive this natural realm. For example, remember Paul and Peter talked about, Paul talked about the hidden man, or Paul talked about the inward man versus the outward man. Peter talked about the hidden man of the heart. Why is the hidden man of the heart, why is the spirit hidden? What's he hidden from? 
He's hidden from the five physical senses. That's why he's the hidden man of the heart. He's hidden from the five physical senses. In that respect, where it says faith is the evidence of things not seen, that means faith is the evidence of things not perceived by the five senses. In other words, faith is the evidence of what you can't see with the natural eye. Now, what can your natural eye see? Only things in this natural realm. Only things in the realm of man. So your faith is designed to be the evidence or the proof of what your natural eye cannot see. Most people are looking at their circumstances, their situation. They may look at sickness in their body, and they're trying to apply faith to what they can see. Faith is designed for what you can't see. Faith doesn't look at circumstances, the circumstance of sickness in your body, and say it's not there. A lot of people are denying their circumstances and think they're in faith, and they're not. Because faith is designed for what you can't see, not for what you can see. So if your faith is not in line with something unseen, you've got your faith in the wrong thing. Now, in that situation or example of healing, if I'm believing for healing but there's sickness in my body, I don't look at the sickness and say it's not there. I look at the unseen promise of God, which is healing, and say it's mine. Big difference. The Bible says faith, the faith that God operates in, calls things that be not as though they were. It doesn't say that it calls things that are as though they are not. One is the denial of fact. The other is the the confession of God's word. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. One translation, I think it's Moffat's translation, says faith is the title deed that we have what we can't see. I like that. Faith is the title deed that we have what we can't see. It's the title deed that we have what we can't see. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Do you remember we looked over in, uh, uh, well, we're right there in Hebrews. If you want to look back to Hebrews chapter 4. No, wait a minute. That's not where it is. Yeah, it is. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. The third chapter of Hebrews talks about uh, the children of Israel in the Old Testament how they came to the edge of the promised land when Moses was their leader and they refused to go in. It talks about their, they had an evil heart of unbelief in them. In other words, they acted according to what they could see. The 12 spies went into the land. Ten of them came back and said, oh, it's a great land. Here's the fruit of the land. Flows with milk and honey, just like God said. But there's a problem. The problem is there are giants that live in that land. Real big armies. They've got cities with giant walls around them. The people that live in there are stronger than we are. Well, they've just defeated the strongest army on the face of the earth, which was the army of Egypt, Pharaoh's army, and never had to fire a shot, so to speak. Never had to lift a hand. God defeated them just because they obeyed him. So I don't know what they're worried about other armies for, but they did. They chose to. They went by what they could see. They went by what they could perceive with their senses. Now, folks, let me, let me make, expand on this a little bit. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. That word seen can mean not only what you see with your natural eye, which is the natural realm, the realm of man, or it could mean what you perceive from this natural realm, this realm of man. Now, most of us go by what we see with our natural eye or what we feel with our bodies. Now, whether that's a physical touch or whether it's an inward feeling, an emotional feeling. Most of us go by what we see and feel. Most people do. I won't say us. Hopefully you've progressed further than that. 
But most people go by what they can see and feel as fact. Now, consider this for a minute. God could have made the world any way he wanted to. He created the earth. He's the one that set physical laws as well as spiritual laws in place. He could have created the world any way he wanted to. He could have made this world and said, all right, from this point forward, this is going to be a feel-like world. Whatever things feel like, that's the way it's going to be. Now, some people must think that he did do that because that's the way they live. But he didn't. He said the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by the unseen, in other words, not the seen. The unseen is going to be more important to the children of God than those things that they can see. Now, that's the way he designed it. And if you're not living by the unseen, you're not living by faith. But what gives us trouble in life? The things we can see. What makes us question whether or not God is on our side? The things we can see. The things that we hear from our boss or from our coworkers or from the media. We wonder, well, is God even out there? Does God even care? Is the word of God even true? Why do we take that position? Because of the things that we see or perceive by the five physical senses. Faith is the evidence of things that you don't see or you don't perceive with the five physical senses. Faith is the evidence of things that you don't feel. Faith is the evidence of things that you can't see in the natural realm. Faith is the evidence of things that you don't hear from anybody else. Faith is that evidence. Now, in line with that, when the children of Israel in the Old Testament refused to accept God's word as truth, refused to believe that God would bring them into the promised land and deliver the land unto them like he said, they had what the Bible calls an evil heart of unbelief. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. So if faith is believing in the unseen, unbelief is believing in what you see and feel. Right? They operated by what they could see and what they felt. What they saw was strong armies. What they saw was was cities with walls around them. What they saw was is a people that outnumbered them. And they felt, because of what they saw, they felt that they were unable to take the land, no matter what God said. They must have been thinking that God was going to bring them to the land, but it was up to them to take it. Whatever they thought, whatever they felt about it, they decided, we can't do this. And so they entered into what's called unbelief because they operated according to what they saw and what they felt about what they saw instead of what God said. They operated according to the seen realm, the natural realm. Well, if faith, if unbelief operates according to the natural realm, then we would have to conclude that faith operates according to the supernatural realm. If faith operates according to the natural realm, then, then, I'm sorry, if unbelief operates according to the natural realm, then faith operates according to the spirit realm. If unbelief operates according to the realm of man, then faith operates according to the realm of God. Because they're, they're polar opposites. Now, it's your choice. Because the person that's in faith sees with his natural eye the same thing that the person that sees that's in unbelief. It's not that the people in faith see something that the other people don't. It's that they choose to look at something that the other people don't. They see the same circumstances. Of the 12 spies, two of them came back and said, well, we saw the same thing the other guys did, but God said the land was ours, so let's go take it. In other words, they saw with the eye of faith, they saw, they looked into the unseen realm, the supernatural realm, the realm of God, and they said God's power is greater than the armies. God's power is greater than the walls around the cities. 
God's power is greater than whatever the number is of all these people in there. And God said the land was ours. He did not just say that it was a good land flowing with milk and honey. He said the land was ours. We can do this. Look at what he did to Pharaoh. He can do that again. But they didn't do it. The children of Israel did not do it. Paul is making that comparison in Hebrews chapter 4. And he starts off in verse 1 and he says, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. That's fancy King James English for saying, make sure you don't leave anything untaken advantage of. Make sure you take advantage of everything Jesus did. Make sure you take advantage of every promise God has made to you through Jesus. And you need to give attention to that to make sure you're not leaving anything out, which implies to us that you can leave some of them out, which implies to us that you can receive some of the promises, like forgiveness of sins, but, but fail to, re, uh, to reach, to, to receive other promises of God, like healing or blessing in financial areas. The Bible says Jesus paid for all of them at the same time. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, that means our financial well-being, means well-being in every area, was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. Same shedding of blood covered sin, sickness, and poverty. Well, you can receive the promise of sin, forgiveness of sin, and leave out the promise of, of healing and the promise of abundance. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, make sure that you don't leave anything out and not take advantage of it. Let us fear, lest a promise being left of us, of entering into his rest. Entering into his rest means taking hold of it. How do we take hold of the things of God? James chapter 1 says that's by faith. So when he talks about rest, he's talking about faith. He's saying, don't go by what you see and feel and leave out any of the promises of God. But instead, take hold of the things that are promised, even though you can't see them with the natural eye, and enter into that rest. That rest is called faith. Verse 2, for unto us was the gospel priest as well as unto them. It's not a matter of just who hears. It's a matter of who chooses to accept it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Faith is a lifestyle, folks, but faith is choice. You choose whether or not you're going to believe God. You choose whether or not you're going to enter in to this condition of faith which results from having believed God. Verse 3, For we which have believed, have believed is past tense, right? For we which have believed do enter into rest. Now he's telling us, we which have believed, the act of believing brings us into the condition of this rest, which is faith. For we which have believed do enter into rest. For we which have believed do enter into rest. For we which have believed do enter into rest. We which have believed do enter into rest. One translation says it this way. For we which have believed do cease from our own works. I like that too. Because the struggle, is it working, is it not working? Is God, did God hear me, did God not hear me? I don't see any change. This sickness doesn't seem to be leaving my body, even though the Bible says I was healed by the stripes of Jesus. What about this? Is it not working? Am I doing something wrong? That's your own works. We which have believed do cease from our own works. Why? Because it's not about you. 
It is about your choice to enter into faith. But once you enter into faith by having believed God's Word to be true, that settles it. There's no wavering from that point forward. Faith is the evidence of things you can't see. It's not the evidence of things you see with the natural eye. It's the evidence of things you can't see. So, by the strict definition, if you don't see that it's working, that's your evidence that it is. Now, that's exactly opposite from the way people want it. They want to extend their faith and have things change immediately. They want to be able to see the change in their bodies. They want to be able to see the change in their bank books. They want to be able to see the change in their circumstance. And when we see the change in their circumstance, they think, oh, yeah, now my faith's working. Well, they're using what they see with the natural eye as the evidence of their faith, which is the exact opposite of the definition of faith. Faith is the evidence of things you can't see. In other words, when it looks like it gets worse and worse and worse, that's my proof that God's Word is true. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The problem with some of this stuff is where do you quit? Second Corinthians chapter 4. Let's start in verse 13. Paul said, we then, having the same spirit of faith. Notice faith is a spirit. What does that mean? It means faith is a spiritual law. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Now, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the same spirit of faith. The same spirit of faith is who? You can't say that we have the same spirit of faith unless there's a comparison. Who's the comparison that he's making to? He's making the comparison to to Abraham. Hold your finger here. We're going to come back, but turn back with me to Romans chapter 4. Abraham is called the father of faith. Why is he called the father of faith? Because of his experience of believing God in the situation where God promised him a child. You remember the story? God appeared to Abraham when he was 75 years old and said, follow me. I'll do three things. He said, I will bless you. I will make you a blessing and I'll make your name great. That has to do with blessing him financially. That means having to do with giving him lots of children. That means having to do with him having enough to be able to bless other people. Now, I want you to notice something, folks. God dealt with Abraham in a, in a materialistic manner. The devil will try to condemn you for believing God for material things. But God has no problem with material things. He made material things. The devil will tell you when you try to use your faith for finances or even use your faith for healing, how selfish you are. Why aren't you praying for the starving children in Africa? Well, pray for anybody anywhere you want to. It doesn't have anything to do with you believing God for what Jesus paid for. And it's not selfish. There's a difference between selfishness and self-interest. I want to be healed for me. I don't want to be healed for a testimony. I want to be healed for me. That's self-interest. Now, I don't want to take your healing so I can be healed. That would be selfishness. I just want what Jesus paid for. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what God wants you to do. That's why Jesus paid for it. 
God dealt with Abraham in a material in a material manner. He said, I will give you the children that you want. I will make your name great. I will bless you. The Bible says the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he has no sorrow to it. Now, a lot of people have trouble with the word rich. God invented it. Now, rich can mean all kinds of different things to different people. Rich is a subjective term. If you went to most other countries in the world, you would be a rich person no matter how much you've got or don't have or whatever. So rich is a subjective term. A bicycle in some parts of the country would make you the richest guy in town. So rich doesn't mean millionaire, doesn't mean billionaire, doesn't mean gazillionaire. Rich means an abundant supply. It means you having enough for your needs and being able to be a blessing to other people. That's what rich means. God doesn't have a problem with you being rich. The Bible says Jesus was made poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Now don't let somebody condemn you for the word rich because God invented the word. God promised Abraham, I'll make you rich. And he did. And it didn't hinder Abraham from trusting God one little bit. As a matter of fact, after Abraham became rich, that's when he became the father of faith. Well, God making you rich doesn't have to keep you from trusting him either. Doesn't have to keep you from serving him. That's your choice. The Bible says the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. I've got a suggestion for you. Don't be a fool. Your choice. So God makes this promise to Abraham. He goes along for 25 years. He's made rich. He's known as the, the richest, one of the richest men in the world, in that part of the world at the time. But he doesn't have a child. God appears to him just before he's 100 years old, and he says, now it's time. And Abraham first has a hard time with it. He says, oh, you've got to be kidding. It's too late now. My body doesn't work that way anymore. He said, no, this time next year, you and Sarah are going to have a child. He said, now you really got to be kidding because Sarah's body doesn't work that way anymore either. And God says one thing to Abraham to get him on track. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Folks, I think that was a serious question. And that's a serious question that I ask myself over and over and over again. When you face certain situations that look impossible, ask yourself, is this too big for God? Until you get to the thing that's too big for God, you still have a foundation for faith. Now, once you get to the thing that's too big for God, okay, give up. But until that point in time, you have an opportunity to believe God's word and See the impossible done. So he asked Abraham, is anything too hard for God? Abraham gets his mind right about this thing. Changes everything about the way that he operates. Accepts the new name God gives him. Before he ever has the child, God names him the father of a multitude. So Abraham starts calling himself and everybody else starts calling him. Or at least he requests everybody else to start calling him the father of a multitude. That must have looked silly for about a year. But he does it because it was the name God gave him. Folks, that has the same implication as when God says you're righteous. Your choice is do I, do I call myself the righteousness of God like God calls me? Do I use the name God gave me or do I call myself an unworthy sinner? Which name are you going to pick? Abraham used the name God gave him. So should you. So it's telling us about the story of Abraham having this child when he's 100 years old and Sarah is 90. Notice it says, beginning in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, here's the spirit of faith that Abraham had. It is written, here's what it is written in the scripture that God said of Abraham, I have made thee the father of many nations. Notice that God said, I have made you the father of nations before Abraham ever had a child. 
God said of you, I have made you righteous before you ever accepted Jesus. God said of you, because of the work and the sacrifice of Jesus, I have healed you before you ever extend your faith for healing. God says, I have, through the work of Jesus, made you rich before you ever extend your faith for prosperity. Or any other thing, any other promise, any other rescue, any other deliverance, any other blessing of God, God has already made you that. And the, the, the reality of God's Word is what gives you hope to put your faith in. Everybody came to church today with a hope. Some of you hoped that I would preach short. Some of you ho came hoping to learn more of God. Others may have come to satisfy somebody else, hoping to make them happy that you came with them. But everybody came with some kind of hope. I hope your hope is realized. But that's why we do just about everything we do. We have a hope for an, or an expectation of a result. But we have to take action in order for that hope to have any chance of being realized. If you came learning, hoping to learn more about Jesus, you had to have some expectation that you could have come to a place where you could learn. If you came to church today and I pulled out a Reader's Digest and started reading stories, if that was my practice, you would have no hope to learn more about Jesus. Right? Abraham had a hope based on what God said to him. Now that's going to be important because that's part of the spirit of faith that we have too. Here's what it was written. It was written that God said, I have made thee, Abraham, a father of many nations before him who he believed. Now that's talking about Abraham. Here's what it means. It means in this respect, Abraham was like God. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they are. I always like to say this, here's, job, here's God's job description. He makes dead things alive, and he calls things that be not as though they are. He makes dead things alive. Now, your situation may look dead. Abraham's situation looked dead. Their bodies looked dead as far as having children were concerned. Their bodies weren't functioning in a reproductive manner any longer. They passed that age. So they looked dead dead to themselves, but God makes dead things live. Now, how does God make dead things live? By calling things that be not as though they are. When Abraham's body looked dead to him, God said, I have made you the father of nations. So God's promise was not based on Abraham's physical ability then, was it? God didn't say, now, Abraham, I wanted you to have a child, but man, you went downhill in a hurry. This, this turned out a lot quicker than I expected it would. So we're going to have to come up with a plan B. No. The physical realm doesn't change the truth of what God says. So in this respect, Abraham was like God who calls things that be not as though they are. That's why he started calling himself the father of multitude. It was the name God gave him. That's why he used the name. Who against hope, verse 18, who against hope. In other words, without any natural hope. His natural eyes, his five physical senses gave him no hope for a child. That's why he had a hard time believing to begin with when God said it's going to happen a year from now. He said, you've got to be kidding. That's when God said, is anything too hard for the Lord? So he had nothing in the natural realm. He had nothing he could see. He had nothing he could feel. He had no emotional attachment. He had nothing whatsoever from his five physical senses that told him, you can have a child. 
but he had God's Word. So uh, who against hope believed in hope. In other words, his hope had to come from something he couldn't see or feel. What did his hope come from? According to that which was spoken. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Who against hope believed in hope. Now here, this was his hope, that he might become the father of many nations. That's what his hope was. That's what his goal was. That's what the thermostat was set on. But he has no way to connect the power source, which is God, to whom nothing is impossible. How do you connect the power source of impossibilities being possible, unlimited possibilities? How do you connect to that power source just by the thermostat? You can't. You've got to have something that connects the two sources. That wiring is called faith. So Abraham, who had no natural hope, came up with a supernatural hope that he might become the father of nations. Now, what was the source of that supernatural hope? According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So shall thy seed be. What does that tell us about where our hope should come from? Our hope should come from what God says, not from what we can see and feel. Verse 19, and being not weak in faith. I like another translation that says it this way. And choosing not to be weak in faith. Because strong faith or weak faith is a choice. And choosing not to be weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead. He considered not his own body now dead. Now the word consider means to gaze closely upon. In other words, he didn't keep his eyes on his body as the determining factor. He recognized the condition of his body. He knew the condition of his body. He told God, it's too late. Well, he wouldn't have said that unless he knew the condition of his body. He wouldn't have said it's too late for Sarah unless he knew the condition of her body. Right? So he's not denying the facts. He's not saying, no, 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 that's not the way it really is. He's saying something's going to have to change the way that it really is. So what did he do? He chose not to look at his body or Sarah's body as the determining factor. He chose not to look at their body every day, wake up every day and say, well, how you feel, honey? I don't feel any different. Me either. You don't look any different either. I wonder if it's working. That's what a lot of people do. A lot of people believe God today and check tomorrow. But faith is the evidence of things you can't see. So why would you look to things that are seen to tell you whether or not something's working? And being not weak in faith, choosing not to be weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was but a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. I like the American Standard, on this verse, uh, American Standard Version on this verse because it says this. It tells us in verse... Uh, what was that? It tells us in verse 18 what he didn't look at. Or verse 19. It tells us what he didn't look at. He didn't look at his body. He didn't look at Sarah's body to determine what was really happening. Well, then what did he look at? If you're not going to look at one thing, you've got to look at something else, or else your eyes will go back to looking at the one thing. Right? What did he look at? If he didn't look at his body or her body, what did he look at? Notice it says in verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God. The American Standard Version says this, but looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. In other words, he didn't look at their bodies as the proof or the evidence of what was going on. He looked only at the promise of God as the evidence of what was going on. And that's what kept him from staggering or wavering 
back and forth in their faith. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Here's what strong faith does. But was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now get the picture. He's looking at the promise, not at his body, and giving glory to God for what God promised, not for how things look. That's what strong faith does. Strong faith looks at the promise of God and gives God glory before it sees any change. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Now, this was something Abraham settled when God asked him, is anything too hard for me? Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Did you hold your finger there? Put something there. Verse 13, we having the same spirit of faith, the same spirit of faith as Abraham. In other words, you can be just as strong in faith as Abraham was that got the miraculous, that brought the impossibility into his life. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Now, how did Abraham speak? Abraham spoke by saying what God said about him. God called him the father of, na- father of multitude, changed his name from Abram to Abraham. That little change means father of a multitude. He called himself what God called him. And he also spoke by giving glory to God for what he couldn't see. We, having the same spirit of faith, that same spiritual law, that same spiritual force of faith will work in you and me when we do exactly the same thing, when we look away from whatever the circumstance is that says it can't happen, and instead look under the promise of God and choose to put our hope in not not the natural realm, but in the supernatural promise of God. For us, if, if healing is our hope, then we would look under the promise of God that says that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus and we would declare that we are healed. Why? Because we feel like it? No, because God's Word says so. And then, being strong in faith, the characteristic of strong faith is we give God glory for what we cannot yet see with our natural eye. And that's what the Bible calls the same spirit of faith. Now, that spiritual faith, or that same spirit of faith, that same spiritual force, that same spiritual law works Every time. It's impossible for it not to work when we work it. It's impossible for it not to work. It's a spiritual force that is eternal. We having the same spirit of faith. You know, we can get to heaven and God can look at us and say, Abraham was the father of faith. You were right there with him. You can be just as strong in faith as Abraham was that was the example for the rest of the world. You can get just as impossible a result as Abraham got by applying the same principles of the spiritual law. Faith is a spiritual force, folks. And the devil doesn't have anything strong enough to stop the spiritual forces that God set in motion. You're the only one that can stop it. You stop it by wavering. You stop it by refusing to to believe. We having the same spirit of faith. 
we having the same spirit of faith? What does that spirit of faith do? Verse 18, skip down to me with me to verse 18 real quickly. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. He's talking about seen with the natural eye. Don't look at the things that are seen and determine that to be your source of hope. Let your hope be based in what God said, according to that which was spoken. What do we do in the process? If we're in faith, what do we do? We keep our eyes on things which you can't see. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Please notice this last phrase. For the things which are seen, the things of the natural realm, are temporal. Do you know what the word temporal means? Look up that word temporal in your concordance and you'll find that it means subject to change. Every circumstance, every situation that looks to you to make things, the promise of God impossible, those circumstances are subject to change. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They never change. Folks, when Jesus talked about faith, he said all things are possible to him that believes. He put no restrictions, no limits whatsoever on what your faith can produce. Your heart is the production center for your life. Your spirit, the spirit of man, is the production center for life. And God made everything in in this world, in this natural world, to produce after its own kind. It's the law of Genesis. Everything he made was to have a seed in itself. You have the seed, the spiritual seed of the Word of God that you can put within your own heart, the production center. Jesus said it was like planting seed in soil. He said your heart's like soil. It'll grow whatever you put in there. You can put the Word of God in your heart to such a degree and exercise faith in that Word of God that you plant in your heart to such a degree that you get as impossible results as Abraham did or even more impossible results, if it's possible, if there is any such thing as more impossible results than Abraham. You can get those through faith because you have the same spirit of faith that he had. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege to walk by faith. Father, I feel sorry for people that have always had it easy. I feel sorry for those that have never had to believe you to come through in impossible circumstances because the knowledge of the truth of your word is more real and more important and more precious than comfort in this life. Thank you, Father, that all things are possible to us. Say this after me. Close your eyes and let your heart agree with this. Say this after me. I'm a believer and not a doubter. I believe God's word is true. Therefore, I can have what I say. The law of faith works in me. My faith brings the blessings of God into the reality of my life. I declare I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. I declare that I am prosperous by the sacrifice of my Lord. And I declare that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. My faith is working. My faith gives substance to the things that I hope for. I have the same spirit of faith that Abraham had. I have the God kind of faith. 
There is nothing the devil can do to stop my faith from bringing the promises of God to me. Everything around me, everything I see, everything I feel is temporal. It's subject to change. But God's Word never changes, never fades away, never passes away, never comes to an end, and my faith is in God's Word. Thank you, Father. I glorify you. I thank you and praise you for what I cannot yet see with my natural eye. I praise your name because your word is true. And your word is working in my life. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but it's good for me to have a a refresher course in faith. Amen. Thank God his word's true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fail. That means for you to go down, if you're standing on his word, for you to go down, the word of God would have to go down under you. And that'll never happen. Never happen. Never happen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget this afternoon at 5 o'clock in the fellowship hall is prayer school and 6 o'clock here in the auditorium is healing school. God bless you. Have a great day.